0: Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. This podcast is funded by listeners like you through Patreon. We want to take a minute to thank all of our donors. We would not be able to produce this podcast or maintain the free resources on our website without you. So even if you can donate just $1 a month, that helps. And if you donate at least $5 per month, you'll gain access to exclusive content each month. This helps us keep the science of learning accessible. So you can consider supporting us at www.patreon.com slash learningscientists. You all really make a difference and we appreciate you. Hi folks, this
1: is Cindy Niebel and I'm coming to you today to chat a little bit about a cognitive phenomenon that um, isn't discussed too frequently, but I think has some pretty real implications for understanding behavior um, within the classroom and within educational systems. And so today I'm gonna talk to you about prevalence-induced concept change. So we'll start by talking about what on earth that is um, and then some implications for society in general and more specifically for the classroom. Prevalence-induced concept change um, comes out of this great article by Lavari et al in 2018 and I'll link back to that on our page but in this article what they did was they gave participants um, they had them sit down at a computer and they would show them one at a time a series of dots and these colored dots um, ranged from very very blue to very very purple and everything in between okay and so that they just had them say Is this dot blue or is it purple that's all they had to do as they're going through right they're splitting up and half of the dots are blue and half of the dots are rated as purple and then eventually um, at some point they started reducing the number of purple dots so in reality most the dots are now blue and they should very rarely be saying that any of the dots are purple But what happens is people start shifting their definition of purple dots. And so now the dots that previously they would have rated as blue, because there are fewer and fewer purple dots, they're starting to rate ones that are like kind of purple as yes, that is purple. So they're changing their concept of what purple looks like over time. And what's really interesting is even when people are warned that this is about to happen. So in these next um, several uh, trials, there will be very, very few purple dots. So you should mostly be saying blue. People still do this. They still make that same change of shifting their understanding of what blue is or what purple is over time. Now when we're talking about blue and purple dots, my gosh, that doesn't sound like it really has much relevance for anything. And Lavari and all and all et al. were fully aware of that. And so in order to um really talk about the implications of this, they also used some different materials. So in one experiment, what they did was they used Faces, and these were computer-generated faces, so they were very highly controlled, and um, these were faces that had been used in previous research and had been rated for how threatening the faces looked, and so many, many participants before had rated um, some of these as more threatening and some of these as less threatening. So they had 60 faces that sort of morphed into each other, so we had a continuum of faces from very, uh, very threatening to not at all threatening. Again, people would see a face on the screen and rate, do you see this as threatening or not threatening, right? Just making this dichotomous judgment. And exactly the same as the purple and blue dots, if they started reducing the number of threatening faces, people started judging faces that previously were seen as non-threatening, As now threatening and then they took this even one step further and they used IRB applications okay so these are um, applications to do human subjects research and they can vary from very ethical there's no problem doing it probably a study like looking at blue and purple dots not not ethically questionable here um, two things that were very ethical that had some issues with them So they start them off by reading through these IRB applications and rating them as more ethical or less ethical, right? So are they just doing this dichotomous judgment? And then they start taking away the applications that are really bad. And so you're left with mostly applications that are fine, they're ethical, and they were saying they were ethical before, but now because the worst of the applications are not that bad, but they're still the worst. So they start getting judged as not ethical any longer. Okay. Um, So what's happening is over time, um, the The basis of the judgments is comparative, right? So it's relative. They're comparing the current um, stimuli to the ones around it. This could have some pretty broad strokes um, implications for some societal constructs. So for example, we can talk about um, let's say, criminal behavior in an area. So if there's a high crime area um, and uh, homicide is happening frequently, right, as the rates of homicide go down, now the next worst thing is seen as the worst thing. It's bad, right, relative to the other crime that's happening. And so you could see as, as things get better and better and better, relatively you know, minor uh, traffic violations could start to be seen as a really big deal when they're the worst thing happening. And so Lavari et al. actually argue that this might happen in the world, that we might have sort of this pessimistic look, outlook on situations because of this prevalence-induced concept change, that the world always looks worse than it actually is, even though we may have made great strides in an area we might still see this happening. So, there are other social constructs where this might matter a lot too. So, this could be happening in areas of racism. So, if we think back 50, 70 years ago, um, and the, the sort of racist behaviors that were happening then were extreme and terrible. And so maybe as those things go away, um, we still have this very negative outlook um, on on race. But maybe this is a good thing, right? Because then the next bad behavior starts to look pretty bad too. And so then we try to wipe that out. And then we move on to the next bad behavior and say, yeah, but that's a really terrible thing to do too. Maybe that was acceptable in the 1950s and wasn't considered racist. But today we consider that racist as well we should. Um, So this can also be used as a force for good, right? For, For progressing society, for continuous improvement. And so within organizations, uh, this prevalence-induced concept change can be both good and bad, right? As an organization has some problems that they need to tackle, that they need to make improvements with, they make those improvements, but then their definition of success starts shifting. The bar gets raised, if you will. And so that can be a good thing and a bad thing. It means that as an organizational leader – maybe things just never look like they're going well, right? Maybe there is this pessimism that Lavarian et al. talk about. And, um, but that also means that we have this desire for continuous improvement, that um, instead of just being happy and saying, okay, we met our expectations, we'll stop there. Instead, the things that are now going wrong look worse, and it's a mechanism to push us to do better, Now, within organizations, you don't want pessimism, right, Um, both for leaders and for employees. Um, Pessimism doesn't necessarily uh, bode well when when you're working uh, in an organization. So part of what we can also talk about is how to mitigate some of this prevalence-induced concept change. Now, we don't necessarily want to stop continuous improvement, but we do want to make sure that we focus on successes as well and remember how far we've come. So if the, a few of the recommendations there are to, um, you know, have some benchmarks for success and reminders of what the old benchmarks were to say, look how far we've come before this was our goal and now we wouldn't even consider, like that's, that's something we do every day. We wouldn't even consider that as, as a, a goal to reach for. Right? So, kind of keeping perspective is very important when we're talking about uh, prevalence-induced concept change. But you are here to hear about improving education. So there are lots of ways in which prevalence-induced concept change matters for education. So the first way that is um, very relevant for my life, I'm sure for most of you as well, is in grading. Okay. So if you're grading a batch of papers, and how many times does this happen? That you start at the beginning with some goals and expectations of what a good paper looks like. And either you go through 10 papers and they're all just really bad. And so you, you start, you know, relatively speaking, this next one you look at is is better than those last 10. So maybe that one gets a little bit of a better grade than you otherwise would have given it, right? And so you've shifted your concept of what a good paper looks like. Similarly, maybe you had some idea of of what your expectations were going into this and you're reading through these first 10 papers and they're awesome, just spot on, excellent, over and above what you were hoping for. They all get A's. And then you read the next paper, and it's just not up to par with the other papers. Even though your initial expectations, that paper might have been, you know, it it meets expectations. They did a good enough job. But now that you've read 10 papers that were so excellent, your expectations have changed a little bit. Your concept of what a good paper looks like has shifted. And this isn't um, this again this is a natural cognitive phenomenon that's happening it happens to everyone Um, so it's not saying that you're a good teacher or a bad teacher for changing uh, those expectations in fact you're probably not even aware that it's happening so I think we can all agree though that it's not necessarily a good thing right to change those expectations um, of students And so what can we do about that? So when we're talking about sort of this grading situation, there are a few things that can happen. Uh, Number one might be that each time you sit down to grade, you shuffle the papers, don't grade them in the same order every time so that people are um, benefiting from this in, in different ways. But better than that is probably to try to make sure you have very rigorous rubrics up front. This way, that um, the there's less concept change that happens over time because you have very clear cut criteria for how those grades are happening. Similarly, you could also have an exemplar, an anchor point for which to um, continually update your conceptualization so if you've selected a model paper an example that's maybe been shared with students what you can do is go back and look at that model paper periodically while you're grading to sort of uh, couch your expectations a little bit this is what we're going for um, and sort of remind yourself similarly um, this issue of raising the bar can happen um, within the classroom as well as far as like what a good student looks like, or a good college applicant. Um, so over time, students who uh, there were maybe maybe half of students were involved in extracurricular activities when I was in school, right? It wasn't everyone. Some students were, and so you could kind of um, distinguish those students who uh, were were heavily involved and those students who weren't, and maybe divide them up into like good college applicants and maybe not as qualified for college. But now maybe we're seeing more and more students are very involved um, and have very high scores and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, so that our definition of a good college applicant has had to shift and that maybe students have to do more and more and more to be competitive for scholarships and that kind of thing, um, because everyone is doing it, right? So the bar has been raised, and it's been raised via prevalence-induced concept change. And what does that mean? I I don't know that there's a ready solution for that, but the awareness of the mechanism for that change, I think, is really important when we start thinking about policy decisions um, coming down. Uh, Another area where this can be important is in behavior management within the classroom. So, um, and here I think there is some mitigation that can be done, but what we can see happening within a classroom is maybe there are some behaviors that are seen as as really disruptive. So maybe students having cell phones out, you are taking or, or passing notes or talking to a friend, all of these things make it readily apparent that they're not paying attention to what it is that you're doing right now. But um, maybe as those behaviors are eliminated in the classroom via classroom management techniques that are outside the purview of this podcast, um, but maybe those things start to go away. But you're still concerned about students paying attention in your class. And so now maybe the worst signs that students aren't paying attention is if they're staring out the window. And so where students used to get in trouble for talking in the back of the room, now maybe they're going to start getting in trouble for just looking out the window because that's the worst behavior happening in the classroom. And having spoken to lots of educators about this, I know that this is something that does happen in schools and maybe it's not as simplistic as looking out the window, but maybe there are behaviors where students start getting sent to the principal's office for doing things that just aren't that big of a deal. So how do we mitigate that kind of prevalence-induced concept change where we've gotten to continuous improvement but now we're maybe taking it a little too far? I would argue that the same kinds of things I was talking about before are what is important here, that we have very strict criteria for determining what good behavior and bad behavior looks like and then that we maybe have anchor points. Keep coming back to... Talking about what is exemplar, exemplary behavior. What does that look like? What does um, problematic behavior look like? And then what what behavior? actually needs to be addressed right because there are some behaviors that don't necessarily need a discipline of any kind right Um, or consequences of any kind Uh, looking out the window staring off into space i mean maybe you want to redirect their attention but they don't necessarily need to get sent to the principal's office for it so trying to have anchor points to have strict criteria will help to mitigate some of this prevalence induced concept change so that's stuff for students but this actually applies to teachers as well we can talk about raising the bar for teachers in an organization for the expectations that are placed on the shoulders of employees to get better and better over time that if you're working in a district with all really exceptional teachers and you want to be standing out you want to be seen as doing a good job it's really really challenging because um, doing a good job suddenly becomes mediocre Right. It can be seen as not good enough that you are in the, the lower half. You're below average. Even if you're doing everything that you're supposed to be doing, hitting all the benchmarks you're supposed to be hitting, you can be seen as below average. Right. You're not in the top of the pack. Um, and then your performance evaluations can essentially um, note that that, uh, you know, you, you're doing OK, but look at this person over here who's doing so much more than you. And is that fair? No. So again, for administrators, it's really important to set good criteria. And then how wonderful would it be to be able to report that, yeah, uh, 90% of our instructors are hitting all of our benchmarks. 90% of them are exemplary instead of um, comparing them to each other and expecting them all to work at the same level, right? We just need to Benchmarks as opposed to comparisons. Um, and then finally, this can also have something to do, some, one of my students mentioned this in, in class this week, that um, this can also have to do with the perception that we have from administrators. And the example that they used was um, within their own district, administration uh, had been very, very hands-on, um, very intrusive, wanting to know everything that was happening on a daily basis in the classroom. And um, the teachers fought back on that, right? And and it got changed so that there was more um, academic freedom, right, more, more freedom to do activities in the classroom the way that the teacher felt they needed to perform their craft, right? Um, But what started happening is that the instructors then, they had this prevalence-induced concept change where the prevalence of those really intrusive behaviors reduced and instructors started to see less intrusive behaviors as more intrusive so things like um popping by and sitting in on a class was suddenly seen as this extremely intrusive behavior where that was actually a completely reasonable thing for a a principal to do is just to stop by and sit in on, on class for a few minutes but because this concept change had happened that was now seen as intrusive so again trying to um understand how beliefs can shift over time, I think is extremely useful in in understanding our own behavior and sometimes the inexplicable behavior of other people. But also I think this is really useful in uh, trying to think about ways that we can mitigate those own, our own cognitive distortions because these things are happening, right? And again, this is happening unconsciously usually. We're not really aware that we're making these changes but they do happen and sometimes you can um, back up and see the forest through the trees and say, oh wow, you know, I'm doing this much differently than I used to, what's going on there? Prevalence-induced concept change is a really good explanation for how beliefs change over time and can help us to um, better understand our own motivations, the motivations of others, and to mitigate some um, maybe unwanted changes. So I hope that that is useful for you. I hope you've learned uh, something about maybe yourself and have um, some concrete ways to try to mitigate the effects of prevalence-induced concept change in your own life um, because it has
0: lots and lots of broad sweeping applications
1: we will see you next time
0: this episode is funded by listeners like you to support our work and gain access to exclusive content visit our patreon page at www.patreon.com learningscientists